And I'm going to just give a very brief introduction of our guest presenter this morning. Susan Grace Banyas is a, a longtime friend of mine. Um, we lost touch for a while, but we're back in touch again. And it was so wonderful to learn about this work that she's been doing for several decades. And um, she and David have toured the country with various... Um, parts of the Hillsboro story, which is the book that she's written telling about her experience growing up in Hillsboro, Ohio. So we're just going to turn this over to Susan and David now for the rest of our time. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to be here. I'm honored. Thank you, Salima, for making this happen. Do you want to say something about your instrument before we start? Because it's really kind of a big presence in terms <laughs> of storytelling itself. It's like kind of brings it on. So I'm going to let David um, introduce this instrument. Okay. Well, all right. Um, this is um, called, well, first it's a gourd. This is the new model because um, the older one I have. There's no pegs. It's like everything is level. But it's called um, Duzon. Say Duzon. Duzon. And then Goon. Duzon Goon. Uh, Duzon means hunter. Gooni means guitar. It's a hunter's guitar from Mali, from Bamako. And I learned it from my dad, Don Cherry. And, and it is a griot kind of storytelling instrument. So... Now you know. Who's on? Good. You begin. Let the instrument begin. This is um, discovering the beloved kaleidoscope community. Is a kaleidoscope history created from collective memories, research, observation, and imagination. In 2003, I returned to my hometown of Hillsborough, Ohio, to begin interviewing people involved in an incident that occurred when I was a child, a memory that haunted me. Over time, with detective work, I came to realize why this memory had affected me so deeply and how important the story was as part of American civil rights history. Although the tale was downgraded and set aside soon after the incident, like it was over and done with, too uncomfortable to talk about, tossed into the dump heap of the town's history, at least on one side of town. Before Rosa Parks refused to go to the back of the bus, before Dr. King rose to prominence as a beacon of cultural evolution, before there were many role models or any visible support, the leaders of the school fight, that's what the mothers called it, Imogene Curtis, Gertrude Clemens, and Elsie Stewart were marching outside my third grade classroom window in an effort to integrate the Hillsborough Elementary Schools. 
and the Highland County engineer, Philip Partridge, was sent to prison for his shocking act of civil disobedience. I was eight years old, soaking up the cultural commotion. The Supreme Court had made the unanimous Brown versus Board of Education decision in May 1954, which legally ended school segregation and set the stage. The Cold War was in full swing as the backdrop. The bomb hovering over our lightning bug eyes. Our dreaming interrupted by progress, our most important product, the TV said. A little story about a protest in Hillsboro, Ohio, who cares? I found one little file folder with one article in a filing cabinet in the Highland County Historical Society referring to this event when I went back in 2003. An excellent five-part series had come out in the town paper written by a local historian. A Bowling Green student wrote a searing academic paper published in 2001. And my friend Connie's husband, Michael Keene, had written the first academic account. Hillsborough, a case study in school segregation in 1971. So, why the silence? I'll be reading a few excerpts. This is one excerpt from the book. And this is Michael Keene. So, the day after the reunion, well, this, uh, I'll just jump to Michael. Okay. My good friend Connie and I, we're standing, I'll set the stage, we're standing outside uh, our classroom window looking in, and he stepped up and said, well, Connie and I were dating, and she happened to mention this story about Hillsboro. I never knew anything about it, and was really interested in how to do a term project for one of my courses with Charlie Glatt, my mentor. Lenora, mother's, Connie's mother, had articles. I went to the library, uh, Cincinnati papers, background stuff, telling the story secondhand from newspaper accounts, and I pieced it together. So this was really the first story. Michael recounts a bigger story, more fascinating than anything I'd heard, beginning with the county engineer, Philip Partridge, who sparks the action by torching the colored school in order to force integration two months after the Brown decision. Well, apparently Lenora did not find Michael's research fascinating. In 1970, when he spoke up at the family dinner, students shutting down campuses, battles over busing, hippies, panthers, priests burning draft cards, paradigm shifts, conspiracy theories, Lenora was leery of his, res of his revelations when she was president of the PTA 1954-56. When he shared his expose of hometown history, the dinner table went silent. Michael remembers dead silence. Pass the peas, please. The African-American community had formed their own Awareness Research Council, but Mrs. Goodrich, one of the co-founders, said they were never invited into the museum. 
The omission was as important as the story held the seeds of truth hidden in the shadows of the American dream. Inspired by my Quaker ancestors whose practices bring to light the situation at hand, I decided to bring this memory, mine, the town's, out into the open and look at it publicly. Connect the dots between what was happening in America now, now, and what happened back in 1955. I decided to follow the story to its source. This is from, called Johnny on the Spot, Eleanor Curtis Cumberland. I knew my mom was a humanitarian. She was an involved person, a strict mother, but loving. Uh, Imogene was the leader of, the, of this school fight. Involved in her church, if someone came along and said, we're having trouble over here, will you go with us, or they're not treating us right, will you help us out? She was Johnny on the spot to go. White people came to her, black people. You want to see Imogene Curtis. She'll know where to get you some help. Junior Burns. Yeah, Imogene was living on Mary Jones Farm in a house over in the fields across from the graveyard. She was raised by her grandmother, Lydia Lawson Burns. Imogene had the know-how, you know. She was always that way from when she was a kid up. It was like something was going on. She had to know about it. She had to know why and when and how. She was always ambitious. Her grandmother, her grandmother was that way, Aunt Lyd. Aunt Lyd, she was smart. She was born into slavery. She always said she shook hands with Abraham Lincoln. When she was six years old, Aunt Lyd told stories. Some of them was bitter and some were good. She said they was like a bonded family. After slavery was over, they didn't know what to do. It was like pushing out your children, saying you can't be around no more. I can't be having you around. She said that's the way it was. It was just sad, and it was scary for both sides. They didn't know how to operate without the other. I imagine Aunt Lou was about 110 when she died. She'd walk up from High Top to Samantha, get what she wanted, her little knickknacks and goodies, and carry it clear back up in the gunny sack from Samantha. Aunt Lyd went to Quaker Church in Samantha. Quakers were liberal. I think that did influence Imogene. Aunt Lyd was way ahead of her time. Way ahead of her time. It was like a gift. I never heard anyone say she had enemies. Everybody knew Lydia Lawson Burns. Segregation is alive and well in Hillsboro, Ohio. What keeps it alive? I needed to find out, person by person, clue by clue, probing the library, the court records, academic studies, artists, my family records, myself, making time lines to connect events in the hometown with my own memory, then out to the bigger backdrop of the nation, a country gone mad on war, 
Those were Dr. King's words in 1967 before he was neutralized. I conducted over 60 interviews over five years, transcribed, see how the voice looks on the page, composed with voices. It was a slow, slow awakening of people who moved forward with energy, their cadences, their emotions, the humor, the vision, the voices, the voices of the landscape, the Appalachians, the cultures of this place, my native homeland, the seasons back and forth, the years, the sense perceiving of this memory place. I trusted this process more than I trusted the official accounts because the story was beginning to reveal itself. And then I began to change. I could feel a strong relationship developing between myself and my society that was personal and quirky and could not be controlled, not by anyone, not even me. I'm not talking about socializing or nostalgic longing for the past or politically correct rules of engagement or personal drama, although all those aspects of memory engineering were and are at play. The relationship was a call and response, a call and response. To the immediate necessity of making art from life, the memory chorus, the jazz. The edgy encounters, artistic, mind, body, everyday, dancing, social, intellectual, integration. Well, that takes time. It's not just a law. There are many dimensions. Why is history so distant? I started to feel evangelical about my mission. I wanted to make the story graspable to young people to remind them their lives matter. What they do matters. They are, they are as much a part of American history as the people in the giant textbooks written in Texas by spin masters of the dominant narrative whose accounts seem detached from reality. The story is not just about what happened then, but what is happening now. It's a then and now history. And I began to feel love, a deep love, for my first community. Because I was going further into it than I dared to venture as a kid. The custom had allowed. And the deeper I went, the more I discovered. I fell in love with the process, with knowing others through their stories, through their art. Fell in love with time itself, time, the familiar stranger. The memories that form the heart of the Hillsborough story were collected from two very different and segregated histories, woven into one narrative that speaks with a bigger voice. I sat in the living rooms, kitchens, 
offices, front porches, and backyards, and I received American history through direct transmission, through ordinary people, hilarious, eccentric, through elders, infused with wisdom by virtue of their experience, through an engineer who sharply surveyed the cultural landscape and decided to step up the action, through mothers, mothers, whose spiritual purpose and outrage gave them the courage to make those first bold steps in my hometown to set things right for children. Peacemakers, not troublemakers. They generously, wholeheartedly lifted the burden of inequality from my hometown. They did not wait for history to come to them. No. They moved forward with conviction to create it. And um, I'll close this part. <laughs> Thank you, David. I'll, I'll close this part with, um, this is a, a monologue from, well, it's in the book, but it's a, a monologue that um, David and I performed from a piece called No Strangers Here Today, um, featuring the uh, diary of my great-great-grandmother, Elizabeth Conrad <coughs> Edwards. Um, and this is, she was a Quaker and lived about 10 miles from Hillsborough. So um, this in the same territory. Um, so I met David. I did this. I wrote this as an essay. I wrote the whole No Strangers piece as an essay for a um, for a conference, an academic conference, and then decided, oh, you know, I'm going to put this. I'm going to make this into theater, and um, did. And then my friend Louise said, you have to meet David Cherry. You know, he was living in Los Angeles at the time, and. I was like, okay, it's a little intimidating, but okay, whatever. And um, we uh, we started working together. So um, so this is an excerpt from the book, and also from the story. And it's the moment I find this diary, this artifact that, in a sense, really um, got this ball rolling for me. Um, back. I don't know where does the story begin. It begins, who knows. So, um, we'll start. Yeah, it's always unfolding. Okay, I'm going to trust you on this. July 1982. My mother wheels the silver Cadillac around the back roads of southern Ohio. This one an old Shawnee Indian trail. She's taking me to meet Catherine Ingersoll, her second cousin. Mom and Catherine share the same great-grandmother, Elizabeth Connard Edwards. Mom thinks Catherine might help me with my quest. 
Catherine's yellow kitchen. Her picture window looking at rustling cornfields. A set of memory cues that takes me to a place far away and yet very familiar. Catherine is shucking corn, sharing sorrows. A daughter lost to diphtheria. <coughs> Every corn silk is attached to a single kernel. Every family has a cornfield of sorrows. Catherine walks to the maple hutch stuffed with photographs and artifacts. She opens a drawer and pulls out a small book the diary of Elizabeth Conard Edwards that she kept during the Civil War when she lived a few miles from Catherine on what is now Underground Road. I open the tiny book. I'm holding a piece of history, handwritten, pictures from a time and place. My great, great grandmother's voice. January 1st, 1864. I arose this morning 12 minutes after 5, found it middling cold, thermometer 10 degrees below zero, blowing strong. No strangers here, but Adeline is sewing at Maria's dress. Men sitting around, too cold to work. Quakers, called fugitives of slavery, travelers, and strangers. It was a form of code. Thank you so much, the two of you, for putting that together for us this morning.